This is Prairie Room Companion, episode 50, recorded April 27th, 2011. Cannons, not cannons. Welcome to this week in Prairie Room Companion. Happy Easter. Christos Anesti. Aletos Anesti. Father and I have a Greek on for you all. Um, uh, as we are recording on Wednesday of Easter week, a solemnity. Uh, as every day of the octave of Easter is from Easter Sunday through uh, Divine Mercy Sunday, the second Sunday of Easter. So, um, I, Father, I gave up, as I think I may have told you, I gave up coffee for Lent. Um, and it's something that I also give up uh, on Fridays. Uh, and, and one of my counterparts here at the, in the offices does the same thing. So I, I was telling her, 12 straight days of drinking coffee. Starting with Easter, because <laughs> Easter Friday is not a day of of uh, not a day of penance, because it is a solemnity, because it is Easter Friday. So, so exactly. I'm, I'm rejoicing in my almost two weeks I get of coffee here. So, anyway, how is your Easter, Father? Uh, my Easter is uh, very good. Well, my said. Easter is very good. It's going very well. Um, you know, um, how was your Easter so- Sunday, Father? Easter Sunday was very good. Uh, it's a little different, of course, here at the college campus, uh, simply because uh, most of the college students rightly uh, go to family and things like that. And so, uh, but it was good. And uh, had uh, dinner with uh, a family. Got to have during the triduum earlier. Got to have a visit from my mom. And nice. So uh, yeah. Cool. Cool. So, Father Andrew and I thought that maybe we could talk about Scripture. He just actually gave recently, and maybe, Father, you want to talk about the event that you do a little bit, um, but he just recently gave a presentation on Scripture. Uh, at, what do you call it, Father, the event? We just call them 21-plus nights. Uh, we uh, just, every once in a while, we try to have for some of the older college students uh, an evening where uh, they can uh, have a uh, beverage, usually pick like a beverage of choice, uh, just to kind of educate them a bit about uh, different alcoholic drinks in a responsible and moderate setting. Uh, I remember actually the first one of these that we did was a night that we called uh, Margaritas and Mary. <laughs> nice. And uh, it was on a Monday or Tuesday night in October. And the Sunday at Mass where I was announcing it, uh, of course, who was at Mass that Sunday but His Excellency Bishop Paul Swain. <laughs> And uh, so I said to him, I need to make some announcements after, uh, at the conclusion of Mass. He's like, oh, but of course. And uh, so we get that, I kind of look at him like, uh. <laughs> so I said, so of course, you know, we invite you to Margaritas and Mary. And he just kind of looks at me and everyone uh, uh, in the church laughs. And I just said, you know, we, we promote uh, drinking is not a sin, but drunkenness is. <laughs> the virgin margaritas available for those that are not 21. Everybody. Uh, but then we, so we, uh, we usually have a drink. We, we try to talk about the alcohol a bit because, I mean, most alcohol, especially liqueurs, are very Catholic in their origin. Mm-hmm. And so to talk about them in that way. Explain uh, that. If you can, just give an example for the sake of the listeners. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's very good. I don't know off the top of my head. Well, I mean, just think about beer. Uh, uh, last night was beer and the Bible. Okay. And so uh, beer. And now there are, you know, of course, uh, the Egyptians had some sort of mead or some sort of a beverage of that sort, but really beer as we know it today was really uh, comes from monks uh, in uh, in Europe uh, during the Middle Ages who were looking for something 
uh, to fortify them during their Lenten fasts. Right. And so there's even a great apocryphal, uh, doubtful story about uh, the origins of beer, where uh, so some German monks supposedly invented this beer and uh, are using it for the fast, and the Holy Father down in Rome hears about it. And so he's, you know, wanting to check in on his spiritual sons, and so he says, well, send me some of this beer so I can try this out. So, of course, they dutifully send him a keg and, you know, load it on the cart with the donkey, and the donkey takes it through Europe, you know, in the middle of the summertime uh, to get the beer down to the Holy Father in Italy. And, of course, that's no short journey, and so the beer skunks. Um, It's bad. Yeah. You see where this is going. No, I don't, actually. And so the Holy Father goes in and, uh, uh, you know, beer comes. And so this is the beer sent to you by the German monks, you know, and he uh, pours it open and takes a glass and takes a sip. Oh, my goodness. These monks can drink as much of this beer as they want. <laughs> I have course, not heard that. It was some sort of penitential drink. I have not heard this apocryphal, likely doubtful tale before. So uh, it's a good story, at least. It is, it is. And as the uh, former uh, uh, bishop of our diocese, now Archbishop Carlson, used to fondly say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Absolutely. So so you had this 21-plus <laughs> night last night, and you talked about beer a little bit, and then you talked about the Bible. So I... I any any highlight? What are some what are some of the highlights or, or some of the things that you shared that you would you think our listeners on Prayer Room Companion would would enjoy listening to hearing about? Well, I think a great connection that needs to be kept in mind is that uh, while uh, beer in many ways was uh, maybe crafted in kind of its modern uh, style, we brought about by monks. The scriptures as we know them are only. We can only have them because of monks mm. who uh, sla- slavishly. Uh, copied them down uh, by hand uh, in in their monasteries so that the scriptures before the printing press could be reproduced, you know. And so I think that's uh, a good did, little reminder. Didn't they change the chain the Bible actually so people couldn't take it and read it? That's what I heard. The Bible was chained uh, up. It might have, I don't know where you heard that from. So I've never heard that. Actually, so maybe I, they changed it because there were no books. And so, I mean, they were priceless in the sense that they took probably thousands of man hours to copy. You know. And because the, the fact that, that actually that, that's a it's a pretty standard anti-Catholic argument or argument that some anti-Catholic uh, fundamentalists and so on make. Um, there's some some bit of truth to it for exactly the reasons, Father, that you just said that they were priceless documents. Uh, but there's also the little fact that most people couldn't <coughs> couldn't read anyway, and those who could read. All had a copy of their Bible themselves. So, so anyway, so that's just a little thing. So yeah, but the, right. Well, and, and along those lines, I like to. I reminded my students last night. You know, when you think about the rare, it's hard for us to imagine the rarity of books. You know, in our day, where you know we're tripping over paper. Yep. You know, um, but uh, what do we call? Um, you know, what's one of the eighth wonders? Is there, do you know what the one, was it? The seven wonders of the world? The six wonders of the ancient world? Does anyone know what one of those uh, ones was that pertains to this idea? I have no idea. Not the Colossus. I don't know. This not the uh, not the pyramids. Nope. But the great library in Alexandria. Oh. You know, I mean, that, that was a wonder of the world, that they had that many books in one place. Right. And and yeah. what happened to it? It got burned down. So there you go. Uh, 
Okay, never mind. <laughs> it was burned. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, so. Maybe why they chained those Bibles. Maybe. Don't yeah. have to and, and so Gutenberg, what was that, Father? That, I think late 15th century, early 16th century when? Uh, late 15th, I believe. Late okay. 15th. So, I mean, for all those centuries, and, and we're, that's just even forgetting about the, what the, uh, before monasticism, before Christianity, how, how the Israelites and the Jewish people copied the, I mean, they did this, had to do the same thing. Exactly. So, yeah, copied by hand. So anyway, okay. All right, so it's uh, – but I think it's interesting just to think about the origins of the scripture, and I'm no expert on this uh, by any means, but just uh, the, the whole idea of how the – what we call the canon uh, – what kind of canon am I talking about, Dr. Bergwell? I think that a canon means an authoritative list or catalog of books. Wrong! I'm talking about a howitzer, a big gun. Darn. No, you were right. What was it? An authoritative list or catalog of, of books belonging to a collection. Wow, I don't that, know if that's I don't know if that's a formal definition or not, but it sounds formalish. So I'm going you, you, you formalized it. I you know, it. I mean, anything I suppose that <laughs> take it till you make it. Um, so yes, yeah, so the canon, the, that formalized uh, list of, of scriptures. You know, even think about the Old Testament. You know, there's no place where God tells them which ones should or shouldn't be part of the Old Testament. It's not like um, when Moses writes the Pentateuch, God says, well, write these five and stop. Yep. Or that, um, you know, he says, now in 500 years, some guy's going to come along named Isaiah, and he's going to write some stuff down. You can keep his stuff. You know, none of that's in there. And so uh, um, how we, sometimes God left to, to the authority of Israel in that sense at that time to decide which ones were scripture and which ones weren't. One of the and just one quick interesting to be historical though, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly. And Father, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe a listener could email. Um, I'll gladly correct you. One, I, <laughs> I know you will. I, uh, my recollection is one of the differences between actually the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jesus's day is that the Sadducees only accepted the Torah as the inspired word of God, whereas the Pharisees accepted the the, the large majority, if not all, depending on which ones you're talking about, of what we consider um, the Old Testament today. And that's one reason why the Pharisees were more open to the idea of the resurrection than the Sadducees, because the idea of the resurrection is seen more in the later prophetic and wisdom texts. It's not as found as much as the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books. So if you only accept the Pentateuch, uh, you're, you're not going to be as open to the idea of the, uh, of the resurrection. So... Interesting. I believe that sounds uh, decently correct. Okay, good. <laughs> Big smile on Dr. Bergwald's face. <laughs> yes. So, okay, so... so I, go ahead. But I think it's just interesting to, to think about in those terms that, um, you know, there, there, there's no set map by God in the Old Testament as far as what will be the Old Testament in that sense. And then if we go on to then the New Testament and then reminding... Uh, my students, that, you know, Jesus himself never wrote. Actually, we, we only know of one time that Jesus actually wrote, which was? Uh, with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus draw, uh, writes on the ground. Right, writes on the ground. And so, um, by the way, do I have time for a fun little story on that? Absolutely. Okay. Is, uh, is, is this is this apocryphal as well? Yes, it is doubtful. Okay, okay. it is doubtful. There's no there's no official church teaching on this. This is all speculation. Okay. Speculation alert. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. This is not in the catechism. 
No. So what did Jesus write on the ground? I haven't a clue. You haven't a clue. All right. Let's, um, for a moment, you shook your head before you said something. I was like, going to remind you, Dr. Bergwell, this is podcast. And so, um, <laughs> not a vlog cast, video log cast. Can we do video logs? Good. Anyways, we have the technology. Um, so what did Jesus, you know, some people say that Jesus wrote on the ground their sins. Uh, yeah. But uh, I think a better description of that is that or a more biblical notion is uh, comes from the book of Daniel. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel is a uh, young Jewish man who's in exile in Babylon. And there's a story in the book of Daniel where uh, one of the kings of Babylon decides to have a party and decides to uh, uh, commit sacrilege by having his party using the sacred vessels of the Temple of Israel. And so they're having this party, getting drunk on these sacred vessels of uh, the Temple of Israel that they've conquered. And also in the middle of the party, this disembodied hand reaches out and writes upon the wall three words in Hebrew. Yeah. You know what those are? Many something something. No. Mene tekel perez. Okay. I believe. I remember. But uh, mene tekel and perez. And uh, they all get freaked out by this. They're having a bad, you know, their happy drunk turns into a bad drunk. <laughs> and uh, so they call in Daniel, this Hebrew uh, slave boy, to kind of figure out what's going on. And Daniel uh, looks at it, and those words in Hebrew mean uh, your kingdom has been measured or weighed, it has been found wanting, and a judgment will be given. And a judgment will be given. And so uh, one thing I've heard is that when Jesus wrote on the ground, he wrote, Mene Tekel Peret. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. In the sense that um, that the uh, uh, the kingdom of entrustment had been weighed and found wanting, and the new kingdom of grace uh, becoming uh, in Christ our Lord. Mm-hmm. Anyways, but aside from that, we know of no time where Jesus actually wrote. Correct. We have no collections of anything Jesus actually wrote. We have no written recordings of Jesus commanding anyone to write. In fact, what does Jesus command at the end of Matthew's gospel? I know I'm stretching you here, asking you, a systematic theologian, to look at scriptures. <laughs> uh, to teach, to proclaim his teachings to the world, and to baptize. Teach it to, to teach and to proclaim. That is the primary mission of the Twelve and the Seventy-Two and the others. And so it is not to write everything down. Right. And so uh, I think that's interesting thing to keep in mind. So, you know, at the initial part of uh, the Christian life, there was... No uh, impetus, no urge to write things down exactly as they were, at least in the initial uh, couple decades. Right. So, now, just, that. just to be fair, I mean, certainly the 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 the, uh, the early church, uh, including of course our Lord, valued the scriptures that had been written, the Old Testament. Uh, so to be clear, we're not disparaging that in any way. You, you're just making the point, Father, that that nothing Jesus and the apostles themselves, or Jesus never, as you said, commanded anything to be written in terms of his teachings. They were to be proclaimed. Right. I think it's just a good thing to keep in mind because for us, the Bible is just so there. Right. Absolutely. You know. Yep. Um, it's just, especially in uh, American common uh, Christian life. The Bible's just there. Right. And so I think sometimes we don't appreciate how it got to us. Right. In this sense. Um, I mean, the other thing with that then, too, would be, <coughs> pardon me, um, 
well, he didn't command them to write anything. He did, of course, they they did study the scriptures, you know, and like St. Paul, uh, we'll talk about how scripture is profitable. We know that in uh, his appearance after the resurrection, in fact, the gospel passage that we'll have today on Wednesday in the octave is on um, the uh, 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 road to Emmaus, where Jesus explains every reference to himself in scriptures from Moses and the prophets uh, right. moving on. And so a very good thing to keep in mind. Uh, but then if we look at uh, this phenomenon then of how scriptures are coming, so the first things we have written are really the letters of Paul, right, in many ways. His right. letters to Corinth, to uh, Colossae, uh, to Rome, uh, Galatia, my opinion, Ephesus, um, things like that. So we have these letters um, for Paul, but here's the thing. When he was writing them, he was writing letters, he wasn't writing scripture. What's the right? distinction? What was? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, but I mean, so in, I mean, and the people in Rome, the people in Corinth, the people in all these places, they're getting a letter from their apostolic teacher. Right. You know, I mean, I'm guess, I'm guessing that most of them. I mean, well, they treasured it. Oh. You know, at first, their, their first immediate thought wasn't, this is on par with the writing of Moses. Right, right, right. So you, you in the sense that, so he wasn't writing that, okay, I'm now going to, God is going to inspire me to write this letter to the Colossians, yes. and they will read it as the inspired word of God written by me, Paul. Right. Right, okay. All right. And someday, 2,000 years from now, uh, people will be uh, uh, proclaiming to thousands of voice on Easter Vigil Night, uh, when they hear this reading uh, from the Romans, will say, thanks be to God about my words. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Now, I, I don't doubt that Paul was inspired to write them, right. in the sense that Absolutely. I need to write the church in Rome to tell them something, things like that. And I don't doubt that Paul received the guidance of the Holy Spirit in his writing. Absolutely. But I think that I don't. it wasn't a formal thing. It's certainly, I, it, there, I can't remember the example. There's an example from one of his letters where, I mean, it's clear that he wasn't in some sort of trance. He didn't, I think it's fair to say he probably didn't know that he was being inspired to write what and only what the Holy Spirit wanted him to write. Um, we know that after the fact, but he most likely was not aware of that at the time, and perhaps not during his lifetime at all. When, uh I think, um, I think it's interesting to think about that in terms of Galatians 5.12. Maybe that's the one we reference that you're thinking of. One of my favorite passages in uh, all of Scripture, of course, the letter to the Galatians is a heated uh, discussion uh, by Paul um, regarding the issue of... Uh, circumcision? Circumcision, that's right. And so, uh, a little ears alert, uh, just to... Uh, Brace yourselves, but that at Galatians 5.12, uh, Paul is getting so worked up that he says, uh, would that those who are upsetting you might also castrate themselves. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Because he's fired up. Yep. And so, <clears throat> and you. So he wrote these letters. The reason, I, the reason I paused when he said they weren't scriptures, because scripture just means they're writing, but he didn't know it was being inspired word. When Sacred was, scriptures. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. He knew he was writing as he had his quill on his parchment. Yes. Sure yes. Yes. 
And he right. was and he was writing sacred scripture, but he was yes. not aware of it, and it probably wasn't re- it almost certainly wasn't initially received as such by the recipients. No. I, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I'm sure they treasured it. I'm sure, I mean, it was something that they kept, that they read again, that, you know, maybe they might have used as encouragement as part of their Eucharistic assemblies that the local uh, overseer, right. uh, shepherd, bishop, you know, might have used in some ways. Right. And so, um, but just the whole idea then that um, this becomes something that is, so coming to the canon that we have now, it was a process. It was, right. it was a movement. It's something that was guided by the Holy Spirit in prayerful discernment by Christians. These Christians might make up a body that we might call the... Um, Church? Yes. Oh. (laughs) Might we be so bold? Indeed. And so, um, yeah. And so if you look historically then, uh, I mean, they were using, uh, and and some of these letters would be circulated and by others, and hey, you know, this is really good. So uh, how, how did they actually start to figure out well, what is sacred, what is inspired by God, and what's just maybe good, and maybe good for some people, but not good for everyone? So my recollection is that that, that God um, actually gave them an inspired table of contents so they would know which ones were that's right. It's kind of actually a repeat of uh, Mount Sinai. Yes. Uh, where uh, they went up to the top of, I believe it was Mount Athos in Greek. Sure. In Greek? In Greece? <laughs> no, this is not what happened. Oh, no. Dr. Okay. Bergold, you are wrong. Oh, see, it's Bible stuff. Again, I went the Bible. I, I know. Uh, well, see, that's because I've changed it so only I can read it. <laughs> no, so yeah, a time of discernment led by those overseers, those shepherds, those bishops, as you referred to um, a moment ago, um, a, a discernment of all the people, but particularly by um, local gatherings, councils, synods of bishops over time, and eventually by the Universal Magisterium. Yeah, and we know that there's kind of really four uh, four marks that they were looking for when they're looking at, uh, at Scripture. Um, and I think there's four good things to think about. Uh, so when they're examining, looking at these different scripture passages, the four things that they're looking at, um, one of them was, uh, or of the four, I should say, there's apostolicity, uh, catholicity, orthodoxy, and then a liturgical use. Okay. Um, so look, and so, you know, is it apostolic in origin? Is it tied to one of the apostles and their authority in some way? You know, we look at the four gospels, of course, Matthew and John, each being apostles themselves. And then Mark, uh, who is a disciple of Peter, and Luke, who is a disciple of Paul. Right. And so we have that apostolic time then. Of course, Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's letters, James' letters, Jude's letter, um, and the apocalypse of um, of St. Paul, or the apocalypse of St. John. Right. So all tied to apostles in some way. Right, right. You know, Hebrews is interesting that way uh, because it, it doesn't itself indicate um, that connection as clearly, but traditionally it was always understood to be either written by Paul or a disciple of Paul's. Exactly. So Okay, so apostolicity. And even in the ancient ordering, though, too, I mean, in some ways they put Hebrews later uh, in the Pauline canon, just kind of showing that uh, that reality of it. Right, right. But then Catholicity. So is it uh, applicable to uh, the the church as a whole? 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at uh, those um, some ancient letters of Clement of Rome mm-hmm. uh, from the early second century, very beautiful writings. Actually, they might even be late first. They're late first, late first. They're late first. Pardon me. Yes. Yeah. So late. So from the Apostolic Era, era, um, and uh, Clement, one of the bishops of Rome, more than likely a disciple of one of the apostles, uh, probably Peter, uh, probably still tied with Peter in some ways. Uh, but these letters, in some ways, are very focused on uh, particular issues at Corinth. Right. And they weren't seen as having that larger uh, ca- Catholicity, that large application to the church as a whole, to the question of salvation as a whole. Right. So. That's interesting. You know, when we think of, and we, we refer to them as they are, Paul's letters, um, they are written to particular churches, and they often do address things particular to those churches, but there is that larger application. Uh, as you were just saying, to the entire church, even though it might be triggered, in a sense, by a, a, a local episode. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that they can make that sort of larger application. Right. Uh, and then we have orthodoxy, uh, which is essentially conformity to the faith handed down by the apostles. Okay. Um, and uh, so something uh, to look at in that way. And I, I'm going to follow up on that in a little bit in a moment, just on that issue of orthodoxy. Okay. And then uh, we get to uh, the liturgy. Was it being used in uh, divine worship in the breaking of the bread, what we, of course, call the Eucharist today? Okay. So it's been used in those ways. Uh, I think an interesting timeline uh, to be aware of um, would be the whole question of on orthodoxy again. Let's look at this uh, development, because the first written canon that we have from any group is from the Synod of Rome, which was in 382 AD. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, and I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is you know, the state of persecution that the early church was under uh, for really the first uh, 300 uh, years, uh, and even a little more than that, of its existence. You know, and so they didn't have freedom uh, when you're they didn't have freedom to assemble when they were assembling together for mass. Oftentimes, that's when they were being uh, arrested and executed. Right, right. And so, to assemble together to discuss something in an academic, uh, not an academic, but shit, but to discuss something in such a thorough fashion that took a freedom that they just didn't have. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so. Uh, so for the first 300 years, they don't have much. What happens, though, at the beginning of the 300s, the 4th century, that allows them to get together? Constantine legalizes Christianity. Right. Right. And so, therefore, they're finally able to come out and actually discuss things. And now, of course, it's not exactly smooth sailing. There are some uh, emperors who are apostates um, who restart persecution in various ways. So it just kind of fits and starts. But... They are able to get together. What's the first thing and the most important thing to them that they get together to discuss right away the first time that they can discuss anything? The divinity of Jesus Christ. Nope. It's whether or not peeps are suitable Easter candy. Oh, I missed that one. Yeah. Yeah. But the divinity of Jesus Christ. You're right. It is the divinity of Jesus Christ. The Council of Nicaea from year 325. Excellent. Year 325 A.D. And so... um, <coughs> Pardon me. I have an Easter tuberculosis. From all the peeps that you ate, no doubt. Um, that that be a lesson to you, Father. No peeps. By the way, uh, if our listeners have never heard of peep jousting, 
I encourage them to Google peep jousting. I myself have not heard of it until now, so I will have to Google peep jousting when we are done. Excellent. Maybe find a YouTube video. Okay. So, this ties in though with that question of orthodoxy. So, as they're discussing the divinity of Christ, um, so they had to make sure they all were on the same page on the apostolic teaching as to who Christ is. Right. There was a heresy and error being taught by some that referred to as Arianism, where they didn't believe in the full divinity of Christ. Right. And so, before they could say what scriptures truly taught the true teaching of Christ. Which writings taught the true teaching of Christ and were therefore the full inspired scriptures that God wanted them to have, they had to make sure that they knew, that they know, uh, what was the full teaching of Christ. Does right. that make sense? Yes, it does. Excellent. So, um, with that done, then they move, start to move on to questions of the canon. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first list that we really have, the first uh, written out canon that we have, comes from the Synod of Rome in 382. Uh, AD. And then this uh, canon, it corresponds to the 39 books of the, or pardon me, the 46 books of oh, the Father. Testament. Whoa, Freudian slip. The 46 books of the Old Testament that we have and the 27 books of the New Testament. Right, right. Now, for one more quick note there, Father. I think, and I might be wrong, I think that, uh, say, Athanasius actually has a list that is either identical to or at least partial in that regard. Um, the Council of Rome, I think, was the first time we had um, a body of uh, a group of Episcopoi bishops gathering uh, to give us a list. But I think we did have at least one instance of a list prior to Rome in 382. Right. Okay. Right. So individuals would have had lists. Sure, okay, okay. Um, and, and that's also going to be seen by maybe the um, concomitant... Uh, development of the Latin Vulgate translation by Jerome. Sure. Uh, going on about the same, Jerome was working on this at about the same time. Uh, he was in Jerusalem at the time. And uh, translates into the language of the day the exact same uh, 39 and, or man, 46 and 27 books <laughs> of the Old and New Testaments. Okay. So anyway, so we, but we so Rome though has it, we have a gathering of bishops who who give us this list at the Council of Rome, which also to be clear is a local gathering, not an ecumenical council. Uh, just very a much. So. That's why I call them the synod of Rome. Right, right, not right. A council of Rome. right, right. And that list is then echoed by a number of other synods: Synod of Hippo in three ninety three, the third synod of Carthage in three ninety seven. It's given some commentary by the Second Council of Nicaea in seven eighty seven. But really, the interesting thing is it doesn't become an important issue again. It's pretty much settled, pretty much agreed upon, common knowledge by everyone, until the Council of Trent in 1545. Right, right. Because as with anything in the church, we never define things until they're challenged. Exactly. Yeah, so both the East and the West, not just Catholics, but even you know, after, after the split with the Eastern Orthodox in uh, in the 11th century, 1054, um, both both Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholics and Roman Catholics um, used all 46 books of the Old Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament. Yeah. So, interesting. In fact, I believe the Council of Florence in 441, I haven't been able to look at the actual Council notes themselves, uh, session notes, but I believe in that case, 
the Council of Florence was dealing with questions of uh, the union between East and West. That's ex- yeah, yeah, 1441, just to be clear to the listeners, 1441. 1441. Right. Yep. And, uh, and so one of the things that they wanted to be clear on is that they had the same scriptures. Yep. Yep. So. And they did, and we do. <laughs> so. Good. Yeah, so there you go. There's uh, the development of the canon in a nutshell. So, Father, any uh, recommended resources in case anybody wants to uh, to read more about this or learn more about this? Uh, a great book would be um, the uh, um, Bible Compass. Okay. Uh, Catholic Guide to Scripture by uh, Dr. Edward Sree. Okay. And I think that is uh, incredibly good. Yeah. Uh, a really good one to look at. Um, I think another good one, just if you want to learn more about some prayer with scripture, a uh, book by uh, uh, Dr. Tim Gray called Praying with Scripture for a Change is an uh, excellent uh, book. Um, what else is a good one? I think um, on the canon, I know that I know you've talked about um, there's there's a book that you had on your list that you mentioned, actually a couple of them. Um, where we got the Bible, our debt to the Catholic Church by uh, Henry Graham. Uh, you listed, and I think that's a it's a smaller book, but a, a pretty straightforward uh, ex- exposition of the essentials of of the, the origins of the canon. Yep. Uh, and then another one: uh, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger gets into the whole the differences between the Protestant uh, thirty nine books of the Old Testament, the Catholic and Eastern forty six books by Gary uh, Machuda is also a, a good book. So. Very good one. Yeah. So, great. Any anything else, Father? Well, I don't think I've got anything else. Okay. Ready for some Easter candy? Uh, get those. What? What? Peeps? Peeps? Yeah, peep jousting. We need to go look up some peep jousting. Go look up peep jousting. In fact, I could be looking up peep jousting right now. <laughs> you could be. Uh, and of course, uh, let's, what, the other thing I wanted to highlight just as we wrap up this Sunday is uh, Divine Mercy Sunday, the second Sunday of Easter. And it's also, uh, there will be a beatification in Rome of uh, Pope John Paul II, who as of Sunday will be referring to as Blessed John Paul II. And frankly, one of the things I'm most interested about, Father, is we will find out what his feast day is going to be. Because I don't exactly. Think, I don't think that's been. I don't think that's really released until the actual beatification <laughs> mass. So, actually, uh, I thought I had heard that it would be the day of his election. Was it? See, now, I know that's been speculated. I I had not heard that it'd been confirmed that that's the case. So perhaps it was, and I missed it. Uh, that's. I've heard that speculated. I suppose maybe we should put it that way. Okay. Well, we will find out in just a few days. So. Yes, we will. All right. Well, uh, as Father said, um, it, it, what, it not just was Easter, it is Easter. 50 days of the Easter season after the 40 days of Lent. Uh, and we will be back again next week with another episode of Prayer Rome Companion. Thanks, Father. Thank you, and happy Easter. Happy Easter. God bless. Bye-bye.